Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. to another episode of Undying Light. I am your host, Alex, and we are continuing our journey through the book of Revelation, and uh, we are getting finally closer to the end. Uh, I believe we have, uh, after today's episode, six more, and uh, seven more, my apologies. We have one more in part five. So next week we'll conclude part five, and then we have three... Uh, episodes in each, uh, in each part six and seven coming up. So seven episodes and we're done with the book of revelation. We can move on, uh, to another topic and get away from eschatology because that has been flooding our airwaves for quite some time now. I think it's a wonderful topic and it's fun to dive into, but we've been doing it since August of last year. And by the time we get through everything, we will, um, have spent over a year, on this topic, because uh, this will actually, this episode will air the 2nd of July, so this will put us into the middle of August by the time we're done, and we've walked through a lot of content, and we have yet to really exhaust, though, the concept, because there are so many different nuances and things like that, and I'm actually considering, I'm going to try to get a couple people, uh, do kind of maybe a roundtable discussion. I want to get some different perspectives, not just, you know, what I believe. But uh, when we conclude this, I kind of want to get some people who have been following along uh, and get them on the show, talk about some of the things that they've learned and some of the things that they were challenged with, uh, and just kind of do maybe a big recap. So we'll do kind of like a a proper send off to this particular series. And that should come sometime in August. We'll probably drop it as a Tuesday bonus episode because once uh, we wrap this series, we will be moving on to um, a new series, and uh, we're going to visit some of the uh, content from the Old Testament. We're going to look at some of the passages and, and characters from the Old Testament that don't quite get the spotlight that others do. So we're going to look at some lesser-known characters uh, and stories from the Old Testament and New Testament for that. We're going to probably do about uh, six or so of these 
Um, so we'll do a short series, and then from there, uh, we're going to dig right into Scripture and uh, kind of walk ourselves through um, the whole Bible. And I think that's where we're going to spend probably the future of the show. We might uh, we might take breaks from that because it is going to be daunting, and we might do small series here and there. But we will kind of make that the biggest the you know the big premise of the show, if you would. Now. My buddies over at the Bible Dingers, they go through and kind of give us an overview of each book, but I'm going to go in and dig into it and do verse by verse. So I might try to get them on. Again, I really enjoyed having them on in this series when we talked about uh, hell and all the various beliefs that come out of it. They put together a really good show for you. So if you haven't listened to that, go back. Uh, we dropped it in August of last year. Make sure you check it out. So as we get into it, guys, um, we're kind of in this unusual little portion here in uh, these this section of Revelation. We're at where they are pour, uh, pouring out God's wrath in these seven bulls. And we're going to look at a few of these bulls today. And we're going to conclude tomorrow or, well, next week, I guess, with the... Uh, rest of chapter 16. So we're splitting 16 into two sections. Um, and uh, we're going to look at the first seven verses today. And then next week, we're going to look at eight through 21. Uh, and then we get into the last few pieces of Revelation um, with part six and seven, which are titled the final judgment and victory in Christ's return and the great consummation and eternal glory. So those will be kind of how we'll wrap out this series here the next couple of weeks. So I'm looking forward to finally uh, putting my cap on this and calling it complete because I really want to get onto some other topics uh, that I've been kind of itching to do. Uh, as the year moves on, we're in July as the show will drop. I am planning a short Christmas series again in December. So wherever we are and whatever series, we will take a break. Uh, for a few weeks, and the Friday shows will then transition to Christmas. We'll come up with a theme and um, walk ourselves through a few episodes leading up to the birth of Christ. And so we'll uh, we'll come up with something unique. I think it'll be uh, fun. We kind of looked at prophecies last year because that's how I was preaching in my church. And so we will maybe follow that kind of same theory, uh, whatever I decide to preach on this year through the month of December. We'll do that in the show. Or we'll come up with a different topic in and of itself. I don't really know yet, but we'll get there. And so, guys, as we get into the show, just a few things um, as quick reminders. First, I do want to say a big thank you to Logos, because without that uh, software and that company, uh, I would be not able to do this show. This uh, software has really put together all of my notes. I have my Bible on one side. I have notes on the other. I've got all my commentaries open. I've got my study Bibles open. And they are a wonderful addition to anybody's uh, library. And I think for those, especially on the go, you can put it on your iPads, your iPhones, and you can get all of that content on your mobile device. And you can have the Bible and all of your notes in your hand everywhere you go so it is not just a pastoral or seminary theologian type program it is for every person uh, your standard lay person all the way up and it is a wonderful program because you can like i said get everything you need and it helps increase your bible study times you can get reading plans you get the audio bible on here 
And then when you have questions, you can just jump over to a study Bible and research whatever topic that might come up. Now, like I said, I've been using Logos for a couple of years now. I absolutely love Logos 9 with its black feature on it, the dark feature. It makes reading everything so much easier. But if you guys are interested, you can check out uh, Logos for free. You can get a free download for it, and then you can just build your library from there. Or you can use my discount and go to logos.com forward slash undying light and download a package and get uh, some free books and a discount on whatever package that you desire. You can get them for all the different denominations and various uh, biblical beliefs that you have. So you can get one for the Reformed faith. You can get it for the Catholic faith. I know there's Catholic faith on there. You can get it for the Lutherans, the Methodists, the Baptists, all of these different little segments. I mean, and there there is wonderful treasures all across these uh, these beliefs. Like I have probably a mix between Lutheran and uh, the Reformed faith and mine. So I'll get Presbyterian and Baptist and all of these different uh, preachers who have come through the ages uh, in my library. So logos.com forward slash undying light gets you that discount. Now, um, you know, I always talk about the show being listener supported and we had a new patron join us from Australia. So thank you, Justin, for uh, jumping into this fam- family and community. Your presence is well received and we look forward to doing life with you. And uh, that is the same thing for all of you who would like to join this community uh, for as little as a dollar a month, it gets you access to everything. We're in the middle of doing a study on Galatians. We do our bi-weekly Bible studies. During the summer, we're taking a little bit of a break, but we'll still do it at least once or twice a month. And on top of the chats and the other uh, and content that we have. So you can jump on. We're on patreon.com forward slash and dying light as well. And you can join this community. We're on Discord. We have an IG uh, chat that you can get into if you're on Instagram and uh, we just do all sorts of different things that uh, get everybody involved we do video zooms to just chat and talk theology and various different discussions so we're all you know in the middle of all of these things and uh, you can get in for that for as little as a dollar it does not cost you anymore there's no tiers or anything set up that's what makes us unique and you get full access to everything on top of early show releases uh, within a couple of days of the show dropping. I'm trying to get better to get them early in the week, but we're working through that. Also, you get access to like sermon notes and things like that that I'm doing for the church. Beyond that, ladies and gentlemen, we've got maybe a shorter show again. We were uh, a little light last week, which was uh, refreshing, I think. You know, getting a show in under uh, 45 minutes, I think, is um, a breath of fresh air because we've been han- handling over well over an hour of content per each week. And this week, we're only going to look at seven verses. Uh, there is a lot of content in these, so we're going to try and cover it all in a timely manner so that way you can get on with your days. So let's get to it. We are in chapter 16 of the book of Revelation. Here is the first seven verses. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on earth the seven bulls of of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bull on the earth 
and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and everything died in, that was in the sea. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, and who brought these judgments? For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now that's seven verses, and we have three bulls being poured out. Uh, the first bull being poured out brings painful sores upon the people who worship the beast. The second two are poured into the rivers, springs, and sea, and it turns it all to blood. So let's figure out what we are going to have to unpack here because there is some uh, content that needs to be addressed. Now, if we remember, I said this numerous times on the show before, the approach to this text is not a literal interpretation. We are not literally looking at um, these bowls being poured out and then you know sores and stuff coming upon the people who have this literal mark. We've discussed the Mark of the Beast on that particular episode, the Mark of the Beast, uh, a few weeks ago. So go back and check that out if you have questions, because we did not point it to anything of modern sense and in the realities that everybody wants to talk about today that, you know, oh, the coronavirus or the vaccine or this or this microchip or, you know, you know, none of that is what the Mark of the Beast is. It is simply your allegiance to the world and to Satan with uh, you turning your back on God. So that is essentially what we have come to the point of there. And for these individuals, those who have rejected God, uh, they will experience uh, these painful sores. And we will, you know, dig into some of that as well and maybe help clarify what is happening here. On top of all that, we have uh, two images here of water being turned into blood. We've got the sea in verse three, and then the rivers and springs in verse four. And we will talk a little bit about that as well. So we will also, obviously, uh, we have to handle God's wrath in this particular text, um, because it is a, a very complex subject to get into, which we probably will not be able to show all of its justice. However, we did have an episode way back last year on the attributes of God where we talked about his wrath. And so you can go back and listen to that for a much more in-depth perspective on that view. So for writers unhappy with the biblical portrait of God, two approaches are often taken in pronouncing the judgment in the biblical doctrine of, his, of God's wrath. So this first is highlighting that the Bible's teaching of wrath and retributive justice, gleefully using this fact to malign the Bible, is primitive and moral. Now, atheists, uh, this atheist Christopher Hitchens, I'm sure you all know who that is, uh, describes the book of Revelation as deluded fantasies in the mind of the Apostle John. He says that nothing proves the man-made character of religion is as obviously as the sick mind that designed hell. Now, Richard Dawkins writes that teaching children to believe in something like punishment of the sins in an eternal hell is a worse form of child abuse 
Then there's sexual molestation by Roman Catholic priests. Well, we know that atheism and these individuals have a very distorted view of who God is and and God's nature, and they don't and can't possibly fathom that God's wrath has to be as equal to his love as well. God is perfect and holy, therefore he cannot tolerate sin, and therefore sin must not be present. It must be destroyed. And thankfully, we have Christ who destroys all of that sin for us. He takes it upon himself and wipes our slate clean. But these individuals have a you know distorted image of God, and they can't fathom his mercy. They only see his wrath, and they use that as a crux to stand against Christianity. They cannot fathom God's mercy. They cannot fathom what Christ did on the cross. They can't comprehend it. And therefore, they use passages like what we're reading today in Revelation as a means to say that, well, this God obviously can't exist. Why would a God of wrath exist? Why, you know, when children are dying or children are being molested? Okay, that's their argument. And I get it. But we also understand that God in his infinite and holy understanding knows and, and things far greater than we do. And it's challenging to to the atheist because they can't quite understand his his mercy and all of the the wrath that is you know demonstrated that he can't comprehend the flood account. Why would God be so wrathful to kill everybody? Well, this is God's creation. It's no different, you know, using the analogy of the pot and the potter. If the pot maker is is building something with his hands and decides, wow, this pot is obviously not going to work, I must destroy it. Well, doesn't that pot have something to say with it about its existence? Just because we have the ability to speak and think doesn't give us a right to question God's judgment. So the second approach places the divine wrath under fire from some evangelical scholars who seek to deny that the Bible teaches a God who burns with anger against sinners and sin. Uh, here's an example. John, uh, Joel Green and Mark Baker write, The scripture as a whole provide no ground for a portrait of an angry God needing to be appeased in atoning sacrifice. Steve Chalik states the idea of divine wrath makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies and to refuse to repay evil with evil. These and similar views have recently ex- been expressed in books printed by evangelical publishers. It's hardly necessary when preaching the later chapters in Revelation to uh, argue that the Bible does in fact speak of God's angry and violent judgment on sin. This is not uh, only in Revelation, but it's true elsewhere. Hundreds of references to God's wrath are found throughout the Bible. Yet one need only read Revelation 16.1 to prove God, the Bible's teaching point on the subject. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. This command comes from the inner sanctuary, or the very heavenly temple where God dwells and his eternal being. The angels are his servants, and the bowls contain his wrath that is poured out in eventual judgment. So the Bible plainly teaches here terrible the, this terrible doctrine of divine wrath. It, it does. I mean, we can't dodge it. it. And if we were to try and omit it, then, well, we're doing ourselves a disservice to Scripture. And we see that 
God will punish his enemies. God will punish sin. We see it all throughout scripture from, from Genesis 3 all the way through Revelation 22. Now we do get God's mercy and grace filtered into all that, but the most of the entire Bible encompasses some form in various passages of God's wrath. Now these first four verses in chapter 16 describe this outpouring uh, of his wrath on the earth, and it begins with that command. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels to go and pour out on earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Chapter 15, as we remember last week, concluded with this picture of the inner sanctuary being filled with smoke that no one could enter until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This being the case, none other than God himself could be speaking from within the temple. The inner sanctuary is the most holy place in the entire creation. According to Psalm 27, 4, to gaze inside the temple is to see the beauty of the Lord in all of his holiness. It is from this place of perfect beauty, love, and divine splendor that the bulls of wrath come to be poured out on earth. This fact tells us that the most important thing for us to know about God's anger, it is holy wrath that responds to the terrible violence precisely because God of God's moral perfection and the morally heinous nature of sin. So when, when critics ask, well, how can God uh, react so violently against these creatures? The first and foremost and important answer is that God is infinitely and perfectly holy and that therefore the sins of man uh, have elicited God's wrath. God is not angry with man as such, but man, but at man as a sinner. So we can see rightfully where God's wrath is being aimed at. It is not just to go against man for no reason but it is to but it is targeted at sin now stephen charnick writes a love of holiness cannot be without a hatred of everything that is contrary to it as god necessarily loves himself so he must necessarily hate everything that is against himself and as he loves himself for his own ex excellency and holiness he must necessarily detest whatsoever is repugnant to his holiness because of the evil of it so again we get this wonderful picture here of his holiness and his wrath being essentially on this level plane they are equal to each other they are you know when where his holiness abides his wrath has to as well because what god loves um, for himself he must hate everything that is against him and sin is that chasm between, you know, that goes against God, essentially. An emphasis on God's holiness reminds us not to compare God's wrath to man's often sinful and repugnant anger. God's wrath is never an uncontrollable rage. Now, listen to what John Stott explains here. He says, God's anger is absolutely pure and uncontaminated by those elements which render human anger sinful. Let me repeat that. God's anger is absolutely pure and uncontaminated by those elements which render human anger sinful. So when we think of God's wrath, it is not something that is uh, uncontrolled or unsolicited. It does not just manifest in a moment. It is a building and controlled point that God is in of himself, that he will stand and remove all things that are against him. Uh, John Stott goes on and adds here, the wrath of God in his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonist to evil in all forms of its manifestations. 
Benjamin Warfield writes that without wrath for sin, God would be a would not be a moral being. For every moral must every moral being must burn with hot indignation against all wrong perceived as such. If we do not react against the wrong when we see it, in indignation and avenging wrath, we are either immoral or unmoral. Therefore, it is not God's wrath that warrants our chastisement, but instead it's an absence of God's wrath that would bring his holiness into question. It's a case in point, like with the instance of abortion. If we want to say that we're moral, we think that God, that God has given us this value of human life and therefore we stand for human life. And if we don't say anything against abortion, then we are simply unmoral or immoral. We just, we cease to have any sort of moral objectivity to ourselves. And in that, if God is not going to fulfill his promises to us, that sin will be avenged. And then that brings into question all of his attributes, especially his holiness. If God does not avenge sin, then we are hopeless. On top of that, we even see this in examples of the cross. If God did not have Christ on the cross and he did not pour out his wrath upon Christ for our sins, then where's, you know, where's this holy God? Is he just a, you know, is he just some figmented being that man has created and passed down stories of over time? There's contradictions in that. If that does not happen, God must stand against all things that are not holy. And as we see God's wrath poured out on earth, the sea and the rivers and springs, we're reminded of his obligations as a creator. A.W. Tozer explains the holiness of God, the wrath of God, and the health of the creation are inseparably united. God's wrath and his utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys. He hates iniquity as a mother hates the polo that takes the life of her child. Here, the wrath of God is linked to his love, since he does not simply walk away in disgust from his fallen creation. The world belongs to him, and he has and was created for the display of his glory. God, in his love for his own work, is utterly irre- irreconcilably opposed to sin, is resolved to stomp it out, and through his wrathful judgment is determined to cleanse the world from its whole, uh, for its holy destiny and the glorious return of Jesus Christ. And so we have all of these depictions of God's wrath being demonstrated here. And as we unpack this particular section, we are given these three, you know, these first three bowls of seven that will come and take care of, you know, these things. Now, we also have made it a note too that the bowls, the scrolls, and the trumpet blast all are happening in the same framework that, you know, the first one happens with each of the first, you know, the trumpet, the scroll, and the bowl. Um, they do not happen in the end of times. They're not reserved for the end of times. This is not a seven-year tribulation where all these things are just happening continuously. Uh, but these are things that are happening throughout history of the life of the church from the time Christ descended in the book of Acts to his second coming. These events are being portrayed over and over and over again. And so we have to understand how that really puts together in our image, uh, how these kind of fall into. And Christians 
are you know spared from this first bull since it falls upon only those who bear the mark of the beast these painful sores are yet another illusion to the exodus since there is a similar since these are similar to the sixth plague that suffered uh, by the egyptians which involved the boils so we have this picture being drawn here for us of this first bull being poured out christians are exempt from it and it's targeted only to those who have this mark and so let's dig into uh, this particular bull because we want to see how this happens in correlation to the rest of our understanding of the book of revelation will there be a particular point that these boils and painful sores come upon people or is this just a metaphor for something uh, else that we see so in considering these first three bulls of wrath we can see that they involved uh, just recompense for human sin the worshipers of the beast bore its mark thinking to partake of earthly beauty and pleasure and so god pours out sores and boils on their flesh they shed the blood of the righteous so god turns their waters into cesspools of blood and death the dwellers on earth sought peace and rest in alliance with the powers of hell so that the fourth bull god scorches them with fire from heaven which we will talk about next week douglas kelly points out that this is a warning to us if we have not received jesus as our savior through faith all of these future judgments against us will come out of a holy beautiful place in heaven proud sinners will be smited to the ground in horror when it occurs except they re, uh, repent before it happens so we get this concept that these are obviously being pointed right to uh, in addressing the sin nature of man. Now, the text really doesn't give us any sort of allusion to this being, you know, um, some sort of imagery or symbolical purpose in considering this first bull being uh, the, the boils and sores that come upon people we don't really get much insight here and in how these bulls will actually be addressed but what we do and uh, can say is how based upon prior judgments with the trumpets and the scrolls being unlocked we have this vision being painted that these bulls will follow in likeness to it and so they will at some point or over through the course of history be given over uh, sinners being given over essentially to god for his judgment now i think these bulls hold something a bit more significant in our understanding of scripture so let's do a little bit more deep dive if we can here fundamental to a reading of this passage is the audience's recollection of john's vision at the blowing of the trumpets as, as i've mentioned before we've talked about the close ties there there is a close relationship between the report of the consequences of the blowing of the trumpets, which uses symbol, symbols from the Exodus to describe the steady per, perversion of the angels and their influences in the world, and the consequences of the pouring out of the bulls, which also uses events reported in Exodus chapter 16. In the same sequence as the trumpets, the bulls are poured out on the land, the sea, the rivers, the fountains of the water, the sun, and the stars, and the throne of the beast, and the Euphrates. 
but the diabolic agents who wreaked havoc at the blowing of the trumpets were sent forth as the agents of Satan, while the angels who pour out the wrath of God come forth from the temple sent by a loud voice from the temple. We've noted that this is clearly the voice of God. They exercise the punishment that flows with God's judgment. Nevertheless, John told his audience here that when the seventh trumpet was blown, a mystery of God will be fulfilled. The blowing of the seventh trumpet describing the coming of the messianic kingdom and the inauguration of God's universal judgment. It is closed with the words, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within its went within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumbles of rumblings and peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail, as noted in chapter 11, verse 19. These themes are repeated and carried further here in, chap in chapter 15 all the way through chapter 16, verse 21. After the song of those who have conquered the beast in its image, the temple and the tent of witnesses of heaven is opened. After the seventh bowls are poured out, and the loud voice from the throne of the temple cries out, It is done! Then John reports that there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a violent earthquake at the end of chapter 16. So out of the first, out of the empty temple, the voice of God sends forth the seven angels with the bowls of wrath, as we've talked about. The pouring out of the first bowl produces a foul and painful sore, on those who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped. The plague of the sores has taken place in the sixth plague prior to the Exodus, which also produced physical sores, as noted in Exodus chapter 8. For John, they indicate a condemnation on the mark of the beast of those who bore it. Their mark as a sinful adherence has become a foul and painful sore. Adherence to corrupt political authority and submission to corrupt religions a th religious authority, the re result of the inbreaking of sin in the world, are condemned to the failure in the eyes of God. And so you could almost venture to say that these sores are marking these individuals as doomed. This is God's judgment upon them. They are they are experiencing his wrath. They have turned their back on God, and so God is pouring his judgment out on them. And it doesn't have to be this painful sore or boil like in the Exodus. Exodus is telling us a very particular story of the plagues that come against Egypt and Pharaoh because he would not let Moses and the Israelites go. And so the Egyptians experienced these uh, plagues in light of Pharaoh's disobedience to God. Now, if we mark these bulls as happening throughout the church age, we can venture to say that there are many who do not actually get physical uh, boils or painful sores or anything like that on them through their lives, but yet have turned their back on God. And so we can see that these are much more tied to various aspects that they will that they potentially will experience toils and troubles and from this world and they have essentially been turned over to torment by God and this is his judgment upon these individuals the pouring out of the second bowl transforms the sea into something like a blood of a corpse in which every living thing dies 
recalls the boiling, the blowing of the second trumpet in which the burning mountain was cast into a sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and the third of the living creatures died, and the ships were destroyed. But f the further development of this image is clear. In the first place, at the pouring out of the second bowl of the wrath of God, every living thing in the sea is dead, as noted in verse 3 here. Does this simply mean all sea life? While the ships in chapter 8, 8 through 9 are not mentioned, at first glance, this text may suggest that all life in the sea, inclusive of fish, coral, and plants, dies. However, a closer look may suggest that the universal language has a different intent. The result of the transformation of the sea into something like the, like the blood of a corpse and the destruction of the, of the dwellers of the sea points to the total destruction of the satanic powers that were cast down into the abyss and the beasts that arose out of the sea. The death-dealing blood is poured out on those agents of evil. They all die. And so again, we can look back. We noted here uh, with the beast back in chapter 9 and verse and chapter 13. And so if that is the indication of where God's wrath is going to be poured out on, it's not going to just be the little, little fishies swimming around in the sea. It's not going to be all the little cute sea lions or anything like that. Now, we, we don't know how animals will fear in the kingdom of heaven. Will there be animals? It, there is some text that alludes to it, but that's not what we're talking about here. What we're trying to get at is the understanding of how these plagues affect the greater scope of God's redemptive plan. And so we can see that in verse 2, these um, painful marks are being given to those who have rejected God. And then verses 3 and 4 are pointing us to all of the evil agents uh, from the beast that arose out of the sea will be destroyed. That, I think, is probably the clearest depiction that we can give. Um, based upon this text, I don't see it as being a literal text. It does give that vibe if we just read it without trying to dig into context. And if we were to read it without actually have done the prior work that we've done on this show within the book of Revelation here, this passage would appear to be very literal. But then again, so did the trumpets and so did the seals. And that would lead us to some some problems if, again, we put this into a hyper-dispensationalist position and say that the Left Behind series was correct and that uh, at some point this bowl will be poured out and those with uh, the mark of the beast will literally be walking around with boils and sores on their body. I think it goes deeper than that, and it gives us that um, connection here back to Exodus. And those who have this mark uh, are hereby bound to it. And uh, if we actually put this into the John and John's context, those who have given themselves over to the cult of Caesar are seized by this malignant ulcers. Uh, the principle of the punishment it means a resemblance. Uh, a resemblance appears to be assumed here. The bearers of the sign of the beast are punished with boils of the plagues as marks on their bodies. And so we will look at this text and say in first century, you know, context, this is where John is aiming at his audience, that these individuals who have given themselves over to Caesar as rulers, we've talked about on the mark of the beast and things like that episode. Uh, these individuals have been marked as, um, as you know agents of evil 
and they will be removed. And these individuals will experience God's wrath continuously here in verses 3 and 4 because uh, the second plague will come out and turn the, uh, turn the water to uh, blood like a corpse. And that's a resemblance of Exodus chapter 7. Um, and the sinister in intensification occurs as this blood is like that of a corpse. A deadly stench of decay is emitted with the result that all living creatures in the sea must die. Now, again, we don't, I wouldn't venture to say that these, you know, the, all the things in the sea will die. But if we look back to the context of the beast coming out of the sea, we can say that all of these individuals who are connected to the beast will experience death. This is their judgment. Now, once we move on here to verse 5, we get this little declaration. Uh, it's really a short hymn is inserted by which the angel that uh, contaminates the waters comments on its action and beyond that, on the place as a whole. It is God's judgment which is now being carried out. This judgment is just, and for by it God responds to the outrageous deeds of his enemies, and he does so in such a way that punishment decreed by him corresponds to the offense. Because the worshipers of the, and the followers of the beast have spilt blood, uh, the, the blood of members of the salvation community, the vitally necessary water is taken from them and replaced by deadly blood. Again, therefore, uh, the principle of punishment and the kind of in kind is introduced here. As noted in Isaiah, Romans, and Acts, the great persecution of J that John anticipates in the near future is described in the words of the angel as having already occurred, which is consistent to the prolific portrayal of the entire cycle. The conf confirming closing remark, it is what they deserve, is clearly conscious reversal of the words in which the promise of salvation in the church of Sardis concludes... So as with all passages that we've encountered here in the book of Revelation, there is a lot of depth to it. And there's much more than just reading it on the surface. And I hope that by next week we can uh, garner more visibility to these bulls and dig into everything that is really happening in chapter 16. And I would venture to say, too, if you feel a little bit mm, maybe not satisfied by the end of this episode, let's give it a week. And see what next week brings us. I have yet to record it. So obviously we want to spend the time digging into the last half of chapter 16. And sometimes too, by just breaking these into these phases and these parts, it can be hard to read what is really going on in a whole chapter by only the first few verses. Last week we did the entire chapter 15. It was only eight verses. So we are able to walk ourselves through that text. Today we only get the first three bulls and then we have this declaration of the angel in charge making this you know, statement from verses 5 through 7. And then next week we will get uh, the final bulls and then uh, as well as looking at the seventh bull. And we will see all of these things coming together. And so we will get a better depiction of how these events will unfold. So stay tuned for next week. I find it to be troubling uh, to kind of just leave it here. But I think for time's sake what and, and the way the show is constructed in these parts, we have to. But I think we've exhausted these first few bulls in hopes that the next few will um, give us more clarity. 
and allow us to dig deeper into the text. I've consulted numerous commentaries and study Bibles and the sorts, and I find that a lot of it doesn't quite give us the full image just yet. And so we continue to wait a week for that uh, image to be painted, the picture to be painted. Because remember, this book isn't chronological in its order, but it does have certain events that we do need to understand in its entirety before going forward. And we will do that next week. So ladies and gentlemen, stay tuned and we will conclude chapter 16 and move on to the rest of the book of Revelation and hopes that we will conclude this series and give you some good practical insight to what is really happening with John's letter. So with that said, I bid you all a wonderful weekend, and I pray that God will continue to bless you and renew your faith in him as you hear the promise that Christ forgives you of all of your sins when you go to church on Sunday. And if you don't hear that, then probably time to find a new church, because that is the gospel. And that is what you must hear every week, is that Christ forgives you of all of your sins and has set you free from sin, death, and the devil. And that is the victory that we get to take forward into this series on the book of Revelation, that Christ is a victor. And so sometimes nitpicking at all of these things, it's good to know, it's good to understand, but in the end, Jesus wins. And those who are standing opposed to Jesus, they will lose. That is the premise to the whole thing. So... Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you guys have a wonderful weekend, and we will see you all next week. fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.